This morning, we're continuing on the battleground. The battle. Jesus has entered the ground of the greatest battle for man's obedience that will ever happen. How many of us know this? That when sin comes a-knocking at the door, desires, attitudes, feelings, whatever they may be, how many of us know that very often, not all the time, but very often, to say no to sin is a battle? Only four of us. Only four of us. How many of us know that to say no to sin is a battle? It's, if you would allow me to say so, usually it's one hell of a battle. But the great news is that the Son of God, as a human being, has won the battle. And that great victor now lives in us by the Holy Spirit. He enters the garden fully clad in the armor of God. And we've talked about the first five pieces This morning we talk about the sixth one. And we need to remember this. All of these pieces of armor function in tandem. Do you know what I mean by tandem? They function in unity. And even though each piece of armor would have a particular function, they all function together as one piece of armor, if you would. So don't think of individual pieces functioning separately from other pieces. It's not that I can go into the battle and I have almost all the armor on. If I don't have all the armor on, I don't have the armor on. Can you say amen? If I don't have all the armor on, I don't have the armor on. And in this armor is a revelation of the very presence and power and purpose of God himself. That's what this armor speaks about. It speaks about us entering into the battlefield of life, fully clad with, controlled by, filled with the very presence of the Holy Spirit, ready for any and every eventuality that this world, my flesh, or the enemy may throw against me. Amen? That's what this armor is. And so this morning we're talking about Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, the second part of verse 17. And taking the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now up to now, each piece of the armor has served to protect the soldier in various areas of his spiritual, well, his physical, but meaning a spiritual soldier. So each one of the ones that we've talked about this morning have been protective activities of God in our lives. Remember, protecting my mind, my heart, my feet, walk, etc. This morning, we come to the only piece of armor which is not defensive in, in its um, uh, essence, but is offensive in its essence, the sword of the Spirit. And it is, it gives the soldier, I mean, how many of you have seen movies, you know, where the swords, sword fighting and stabbing and slicing and whatever? This is the purpose of the sword of the Spirit, that we can cut through and penetrate through all the attacks and the deceptions and the lies of the enemy or of our own flesh 
or of the world so that we can be a people when the barrage of the natural, the fallenness, the corruption of this world through whatever means comes into our presence. We can take the sword of the Spirit and with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, begin to be by the Holy Spirit's power discerning and understanding and deciding, cutting through, cutting down, penetrating, so that these issues don't overcome us and debilitate us. So this means that Jesus not only entered the battle wearing protective spiritual armor, but he also entered wielding the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, in order to penetrate and cut through the attacks of the enemies. Remember Hebrews 4.12. Many of you have heard about Hebrews 4.12. Let me read it to you. It's a very, very important verse. You should know this verse. For the Word of God, for the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I just substituted that, right? Okay. Is Quick and powerful, King James says, or is living and active. Active means effectually powerful. That word active means effectually powerful. It does what it's supposed to do. It achieves God's purpose in God's power. Then it is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing, you see, to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and resulting in and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's a two-edged sword. Why a two-edged sword? Have you ever thought of that? Why a two-edged sword? You know, why? Why a two-edged sword? Why just not a sword that's good and sharp on one edge? And blown in the other one. So if you don't cut him, at least you can hit him in the head and knock him out. Why two-edged sword? Well, I believe that one edge deals with the external attack against us. And the other edge deals with the internal attack that we experience. Now, that's just the thought, hopefully from the Lord, that I have. It's two-edged. One has to do with outside of me. And the other has to do with the inside of me, if you would. And you'll just have to experience that, which one it is. Sometimes my feeling and my anger or my desires are raging inside of me. I need one of the edges, if you would, of the sword of the spirit to deal with my internal issues. Correct? And then sometimes it is an attack from the outside whatever that might be, then I need, if you would, the other edge of the sword to deal with those issues. But we need how many? Which, which edge? Both edge. We need both of them. In Deuteronomy thirty-three twenty-nine, this sword that Jesus is carrying into battle is called the sword of God's triumph. Of God's triumph. Jesus enters the battle, wielding the sword. You know what that reminds me of? And it may be in your notes, I'm not sure. How many of you remember Joshua chapter 5? And the nation has already, under Joshua's leadership, been taken into the promised land. They've crossed the Jordan River. By the way, the name Joshua, Joshua's name originally was not Joshua. It was Hosea, the son of Nun. Some of you may have remembered that. Hosea, the son of Nun. What does the word Hosea mean? 
It means deliverer, salvation. Correct? That's what the word Hosea means. And so Moses changed the name of Hosea, the son of Nun, to what? Yahshua. And so the name Yah, the first name, the I, I am of God. Remember in Exodus 3.14, what is your name? And what does the Lord say? Tell them that Yah had sent you, I am. And so I am combined with Hosea, which is Yahshua. The English is Jesus, means God's deliverer, or I am salvation, or I am the deliverer. And so Joshua is such a picture of going into battle. And before Joshua goes into battle, I think it's Joshua 5, 15, he sees a man standing before him. Do you remember the story? You see, you didn't see the movie, so you don't know the story. Read the book rather than rely on the movies and the TV shows. I, don't, I didn't say don't do those. I said read the book rather than relying on the others. And stood before him was this man with a drawn sword in his hand. Now, Joshua is smart. What did he say? You on our side or against us? Are you for us or against us? And the man says, neither one. I don't take sides. For I am the captain in King James. I like that better, but your version may say the commander. I am the captain of the hosts of the Lord. The hosts meaning what? The armies of God. And then this man says to Joshua the same thing that the voice from the burning bush in Exodus 3 says to Moses, take off your shoes from off your feet for the ground upon which you stand is holy ground. This is a pre-incarnate revelation or figure, if you would, of Jesus. It's called either theophany or Christophany. It's the appearance of Jesus in human form before he was born into the world. It's the Son of God. And so the Son of God, as he entered into the battle to destroy the nations that were raised up against God to give his people the promise of Abraham. Remember the land in Genesis chapter 12? I will give you a land. And this man carries the sword. So Jesus enters the garden carrying the sword of the Spirit. Why? Because the living eternal word of God as a man needs a sword. And so the living word of God dwelling as a man among us, this man needs the sword of the Spirit. And so in Gethsemane, in Gethsemane, the incarnate commander, you know what incarnate means now, becomes flesh. In Gethsemane, the incarnate commander has entered the garden wielding the sword of God's triumph against the stronghold of Adam's disobedience. He's not coming necessarily against Satan in the garden. He's defeated Satan in the wilderness in chapter 4. He's coming against Satan. That which caused death to come into the world, which was what? As in Adam, all die. Remember Adam's disobedience. So also in Christ shall all be made 
alive. Remember in 1 Corinthians 15. And so Jesus enters the battle with the sword of the Spirit, drawn against the disobedience of Adam. And therefore, when I say drawn against the disobedience of Adam, what do I mean? What does that mean biblically? That means that everyone who is of the race of Adam, he draws his sword against the disobedience of every person who is of the race of Adam. And how many are of the race of Adam in this room? All of us. All of us were born in Adam spiritually. And so you see someone says, am I a racist? Well, of course I'm a racist. All of us are. We have been delivered from one race and we live in another race of people, correct? I am a racist biblically in the good sense of the word. So this means that he enters the garden with the sword drawn. And he not only is armed with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, but he enters even as the living and abiding Word of God, remember in First Peter, whose obedience itself will be the sword that cuts through the disobedience of Adam, thus freeing all of his people from the curse of the broken law, which is death. He enters with the sword of the Spirit. Jesus enters the battle armed with the sword of the Spirit of the knowledge of God's will. This man knows the will of God. And as we, as I talk about this, just kind of briefly going through this, this is very difficult to briefly go through such a subject. But let us take note of who we are and where we are and what this sword is to us. Remember, I've admonished us before, never take what is said in the Bible externally. Take it in, in be, becomes what? An internal work. Allow the sword of the Spirit of God to plow the field of your heart, correct? Allow the sword of the Spirit of God as we listen to the Word to allow to take the Spirit, allow the Spirit to take the sword and dig into our hearts. Dig into our hearts. You know how do you plant something? You dig up the ground and you stick the seed or the thing into the ground, root it down so it can begin to be, so it can begin to what? Grow. Allow the Holy Spirit to do this. How do you know the will of God? I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Then learn the word of God. Jesus knew the will of God before he entered and as he entered this battleground. And that's going to be important for us to remember next week. Jesus already knows the full will of God. He's not in there, well, I hope I'm this and I hope I'm that and I hope God blesses me in this and I wonder what's going to happen here. This man isn't like that. He knows what's going on. Jesus enters the battle with his heart and his mind, already armed with God's living word as revealed and applied by the Spirit. Jesus enters the garden armed with the word of God so he will not sin against God. Remember 119.11, thy word have I hid in my heart, Psalm 119.11, that I might not what? Sin against you. You're worrying about why you sin so often or so easily. How many of us have an issue? I sin too easily. Anybody in here like that? I sin too easily. One of the reasons we sin too easily, and perhaps the base reason is, is we don't have the Word of God plowed into our heart's soil and 
rooted deeply enough to deal with the activities and the temptations of sin when they come. We must be rooted in the Word of God so it is rooted in us. So if you're having real struggles in this area and difficulties, don't ask, what am I going to do today? Get into the Word more regularly. Can you say amen? Yes. I can't emphasize this enough. Jesus enters the battle carrying the only weapon that enables him to cut through all the deceptions and the lies of the devil about his purpose and the means of that purpose. How do you know whether something is a deception? How do I know that moving from point A to point B is a deception? Is, does it say in the Bible that you shall live on this street or in this area of the city or across the lake or in Jefferson or Orleans? Does that say that in the Bible? Steve, is there any verse in there that says where you should live? Well, then what is the Bible good, and good for me, Todd, to help me to discern this? I think we need to live here, and here are the reasons why, and whatever. Or I think I need to have this job, or go to these schools. Whatever the issue, how do we know? What does the Bible have to do with that, Janet? As I listen to the Word of God, and as I allow the Holy Spirit to plow into my mind the content of the Word, but also it causes my spiritual ears to be more in tune with and recognizing of the daily personal voice of the Holy Spirit who will then speak to you if you ask. James 4, 2, you have not because you ask not. If you ask, rather than making these decisions, if you first ask God what to do, I can't stand it when I hear believers say, here's the decision. And I'll ask why. Why? I want to know why, David. I want to know why. Why? Because I am given as a pastor to know what you are doing and why you are doing it. I am a nosy man. Why? Because I don't want you to be devoured by Satan. I want to know why. And I will get in your face as much as I can. Because you'd rather me in your face than Satan devouring you. Well, I don't know. Maybe you may not. And so, what was I talking about just then? Where was I going with this? Help me. What? Listen to the Holy Spirit. And so you can give me 15 reasons. I say, why? Why, Chris? Why are you doing this? Why are you going there? Why? And you get, well, okay, those are fine, perhaps. But the problem is those are the defining reasons for the decision. There's only one defining reason for any and every decision in my life. What is it? The will of God. And how do we know the will of God? We know it obviously from the Word because there's so much in the Word, but then we know the will of God for so many of these daily issues because the Holy Spirit has been allowed to speak to me, and I've allowed my ears to be in tune to Him, and I am doing something, going somewhere, saying something, deciding something, and all of a sudden, it's like that man in a, in a cave one day. Somebody 
Only the still, small voice of God spoke to what? Elijah. Remember? And you get a little check in your spirit. I wonder what that's about. No, no, probably nothing, nothing. And I'm going on. Listen to those little bitty checks in your spirit. Can you say amen? Very often, the Holy Spirit does not yell. He wants us to hear his whispers. And the way we get to hear his whispers is to listen to him as we read the word. And the more we do it, the more we will hear and discern and recognize and hopefully obey his whispers. Amen. Jesus enters the garden knowing the whispers of God. He knows them. You see, as a result, Jesus enters the garden able to cut down the temptation to withdraw from the fight. You say, oh, well, Jesus made it because that's Jesus. No, no way. It's because he was clad in the full armor of God, plus the other issues we've talked about. He enters the garden as God's victor, armed with the weapon of God's word of power to overcome all the works of the devil. Do you have the biblical reference there? 1 John 3, 8b means the second part of the verse. Jesus, sorry, I'm thinking of another verse. There it goes. When I think of one verse, it collides with this one. The Son of God appeared for this purpose. To destroy the works of the devil. It's a beautiful verse. You should know the verse. Why did Jesus come? Well, there are many ways of saying it, but one of the ways you can say it is how the Bible says it. And that would be a nice way of saying it. Jesus began his ministry, you remember, by destroying Satan's works by wielding the sword of the Spirit. He began the work of the ministry by showing that he will be obedient in life. And now he comes to this time of the uh, ministry and he draws the sword of the Spirit against the temptation not to obey God unto death. So he has already destroyed the work of Satan in overcoming his daily obedience. He did that what, when? Chapter what? What? Four of Matthew and Luke. Come on. You got to know your Bibles. Have to know your Bibles. It's life, it's protection, it's provision, it's safety, it's ministry, it's health. And so in the wilderness, with the sword of the Spirit, it is written, it is written, it is written. You remember that? He conquers Satan's ability to overcome his daily obedience. Aren't you glad? And then the garden... He's going to wield the sword of the Spirit against the temptation in himself to want another way. You will see that next week. And he wields the sword of the Spirit even against his natural desires so that he is obedient unto death, so that his death becomes our spiritual death in Adam in order to become our spiritual life in Christ's resurrection. Now, what verse did I just quote? Romans 4.25. Thank you. 
You'll have to look it up. Jesus has now entered the battle armed with the full armor of God and is ready to engage the greatest battle of his human will. The greatest battle of his human will. Every time throughout his life that Jesus obeyed the Father was a minuscule activity that will find all of these acts of obedience will find their culmination in this one act of obedience in the garden through this one act of obedience all of these other acts of obedience of Jesus from the very beginning of his life were if you would shout types or uh, little glimpses of whatever all of them were contained in this one act of obedience and the reason he will be successful in this one act of obedience is that he has been successful in every other act of obedience throughout his life. Romans 5.19 For as by one man's act of obedience it says one man's disobedience but I'm putting act of obedience I'm emphasizing that through one man's act of disobedience. Who was that? Adam. The many were made sinners. So by the one man's act of obedience, the many will be made righteous. And what is that one act of obedience that Paul is talking about? Well, it's, I think it's two things. It is the totality of the obedience of the Son of God in the incarnation. Can you get that? It's the totality But I think specifically, because I'm thinking of another verse to uh, justify this comment, specifically that one act of obedience is to say yes to the cross. I think that's the accentuation of what Paul, or the emphasis, if you would, of what Paul is saying there, to say yes to the cross. Now, why do I say that? How many of you know what Philippians 5.8 says? Jesus was obedient unto death, even death on the cross. I believe that's the one act specifically, but it is, in that one act is contained all the acts of obedience. So we don't want to differentiate it, but we do, I think, want to specify it because all of the acts of Jesus' life of obedience culminate and are crescendoing to this one act. All of them are leading, if you would, up to the summit, and the summit is this act, because in every act of obedience in Jesus' life is contained this act of obedience unto death according to the Father's will. Do you get that? Do we understand that? Every act of obedience contains this act. If it didn't, he wouldn't have the other acts. As the willful and active disobedience of Adam brought death to all, so now the willful and active obedience of another man or another Adam will bring life to all of God's people. Now, that's the end of your notes, but let me add a couple of more things that I felt the Lord gave me yesterday that I didn't get in your notes. So you may have to take different kinds of notes. <clears throat> Just want to say a few things about it for us this morning. God achieves his eternal purpose in us through the regenerating and sanctifying word 
of his spirit. So the word of God, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, has two primary functions in our lives. It first regenerates us, and second, we are sanctified, or it begins to sanctify us. Sanctify, when I say sanctify, I'm thinking of Romans 8, 29. Everybody knows what Romans 8, 29 is. What is, somebody help me on, what, what is Romans eight twenty nine? Say it again. Say, I can't hear you. Say it loud. Go ahead. Say it one more time. For those whom he predestined, he, sorry, conform, for those whom he justified, he conformed. He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's God's goal. That's what sanctification is all about. Being conformed to the image of God's son. We were made in the image of God, but God's son is the image of the invisible God. What verse is that? Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Where do we read that? Colossians 1.15. And so we are to be conformed into the image of God's Son, because he is the image of God himself. Regeneration means re-meaning what? Another. Let's do it again. Reread your homework. Regeneration. What word do I see in generation? Come on. Genesis. Genesis. It is a new genesis. It is a recreation. It is not a renewal. It is not a renewal or just working over. It's a brand new creation requiring that the old creation be fully put to death so that a new creation comes forth. And so, 1 Peter 1.23, you have been born again, not of the perishable seed, but of the imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. How were we born again? We heard the word of God. Specifically, what word? The word of the gospel. Correct? When we heard the word of the gospel, the Holy Spirit took that word as God's spiritual scalpel. And as we were hearing the word of God, the Holy Spirit was operating on our stony heart, removing the heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. What verse is that? Where's that from? Ezekiel 36, what? Verse 26. So we heard the gospel. And as we heard the gospel, something was happening inside of us. How many remember when you began to hear the word of truth about God the word of truth about yourself. The word of truth about how to be justified before a holy God as a reprobate sinner. When you began to hear that word, what began to happen in your hearts, men, of pe- uh, men and women of God? What began to happen? Something began to happen on the inside. Do you remember that? Anybody remember it at all? A churning, a feeling, a desire. Something was going on. What is that, Amanda? God was, by the Spirit, operating on your heart, giving you a spiritual heart transplant, don't you see? And when that transplant was concluded, you were then 
in concert with that, given the ability and the power and the desire excuse me, desire to appropriate that which God is doing and had done in you to receive it in your will, which is the, which is the, uh, the, the gift of God. So Ephesians 1, sorry, 2, 8 says this, for you, we, you have been what? Saved by grace. You're not saved by faith. You're saved by the grace of God in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you appropriate it or receive it or embrace it unto yourself by faith. The word by dia, D-I-A, through the mechanism or through the avenue of faith. And that faith and that whole work, salvation and grace and faith, is not yours, but it is God's gift to you. Do you see that? That's the work of regeneration. And so Paul's talking about in Romans 10, 13 to 17. I won't read it all. He says, how are they going to know? How are they going to know? He says, tell them, preach the word. And when the word is being preached, they need a preacher. And preacher doesn't mean someone in a pulpit. Preacher means a word of God from a man and woman of God, okay? And so they hear the preacher, whatever the preacher is, you're sharing your lunch, at lunch, your testimony, you're talking to a neighbor, however that works. And when they hear that, the word of God says, and faith comes by the word of God. Um, by hearing what? And hearing by the word of God or the word of Christ. You see, according to some, faith is given to every person in the world a little bit so they can decide to be for Jesus. And when they decide to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, then Jesus comes a running. <whistles> hey, Jesus, faith, <whistles> come on. That's not what the word says. The word says that Faith must come to me. What does it mean? It's not there until it comes to me. It's given to me. And once it's given to me, why is it given to me? Not to be born again. I don't have faith to be born again. I am born again. I am regenerated. And God gives me the faith to be receiving and understanding and walking in it. Faith is the response of God's pre move of regenerating me. It's not the work that I do to get God to regenerate me, don't you see? It comes. Well, Bible says everybody has a measure of faith. No, it doesn't. Chris, does the Bible say everybody has a measure of faith? No. What does Paul say in Romans 12? What is it, verse 3? To those among you, the church, God has given a measure of faith to the church to the believers we have been given a measure of faith the second work of the holy spirit in in uh, by the word is our sanctification the goal of sanctification is to be conformed to the image of god's son and i have in here second timothy 3 16 and 17 let me end by encouraging you to do this psalm 119 We won't go into what that is today, although I think I'm getting more and more of the leading of the Lord to teach Psalm 119. As you know, it's the longest psalm in the Bible. I think it has about 32 verses in it or something. But it's an incredible work of uh, literature, if nothing else. But Psalm 119, I think it's verses 97 to 105. Yeah, 97 to 105. I'm going to encourage you to do this, and I want you to do it. Read those verses. 90, I think it's 97 to 105. Do you see the alphabet given in Psalm 1? Is that the beginning of the next alphabet? 
104, is it? That's the end of that particular section. Okay, well, include 105. It's a nice verse. That, uh, no, no, that's what I was thinking, 105. That, that's the conclusion of it, I think, if you would. Read this paragraph and look, look. Keep it before you and ask the Holy Spirit, make this, develop this as my zeal for your word. Amen? Brethren, get into the word more. Some of you would end the word pretty well. Some of you are skating on thin ice. Satan will take severe opportunity to attack you. Get into the word of God. See you next week.